And if you have your Bibles, please turn in them to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning at verse 3. And I know in your bulletins, if you have that in front of you, uh, it says that we're reading through verse 11. But uh, as I was rereading the passage earlier, uh, I thought that it would be far better for us to read all the way to verse 20. And so we'll read to verse 20 this morning. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3 through verse 20. And then after that, we'll turn to our sermon passage this morning, which is John chapter 20, verses 1 to 10. So again, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 20 is our scripture reading, and our sermon passage is John 20, verses 1 to 10. Brothers and sisters, before we begin reading, I want to remind you again, uh, quite solemnly, seriously, that this is the word of the Lord. This is God speaking to you. You don't need to wait for some beatific vision. All you need to do is to open God's word. All you need to do is to hear God's word read. And you will know that the Lord is speaking to you. He has preserved his word for us. He has ensured that it has been transmitted down to our age, to our day. And that is a very gracious thing on the Lord's part to have done. So please give your full attention now to the reading of the word of the Lord. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 20. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And if that was the end of our reading, I would say amen right there, but it's not. Please turn now to John chapter 20 verses 1 to 10. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. 
So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. This ends the reading of God's most holy word. Let us pray. Most gracious God, Heavenly Father, we are grateful that you saw fit in your infinite wisdom to set down your word, as it were, in stone, in permanent form, so that we today, two millennia after Christ lived and walked on the earth, died and was raised so that we might have your word as a testimony of what you have done, not only to ensure the salvation of your people, but to carry out the salvation of your people. Lord, we are grateful for the passages of your, of your word, of scripture that we have heard read today. And now we pray for the preaching of your word. We pray for your blessing upon it. We pray for it to be powerful. We pray that your spirit would use it to sharpen us, to strengthen us, to correct us, to rebuke us if we need be, to build us up in our faith, to grow us. And so, O oh Lord, we pray for the one who preaches, asking that your spirit would give him power and strength. We pray as well, O oh Lord, no less for the ones who hear that you would make us active hearers, but also doers of your word. Help us, O oh Lord, to hear with ears of faith, to see and to know. Please, O oh Lord, bless us now as your word is preached. We pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. <clears throat> Let me ask you a rhetorical question to start off our sermon today. What if John's gospel ended at the very end of chapter 19, where all we have is the death, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, the piercing of his side, the, the mocking of the guards? What if after his death there is nothing more to report? And all the Gospels ended with his crucifixion. Well, you might add, and, and probably correctly, though somewhat cynically, perhaps, that, well, if that were the case, we wouldn't have the Gospels. There wouldn't be such a thing known as the Gospels because there would be no good news. This wouldn't have been recorded. But let's just, for the sake of, of this hypothetical, let's consider that. What if all of the Gospels ended with Christ's crucifixion? Now, there, there are some, perhaps many, who would prefer that the four Gospels make no mention of any events that took place after Jesus died. 
There are some who would prefer that nothing in the Bible, there would be nothing in the Bible about his resurrection from the dead. And even some who, who call themselves Christians deny that Jesus actually was raised from the dead. And they interpret the events that are described in our passage and in the other three Gospels as, as metaphorical, that these aren't to be taken literally, but they're mere metaphors of the transformation that happens in the hearts of those who love the Lord. These people think that what was really important about Jesus was the example that he set for you and for me and showing compassion for people. That what was really important were his moral and ethical teachings. Those miracles that he supposedly did, that resurrection, they would prefer it if those had never been included in the accounts of Jesus' life because it really just makes things difficult to explain away. Now, if it was the case that the Gospels did not contain any account of Jesus being raised from the dead, then what we're doing in the church and in our lives is all in vain. If Jesus is not raised from the dead, then the Bible is meaningless. There is no point in you and me following the precepts of God's Word. There's no point in us trying to be the good people that the, the Bible says we ought to be if Jesus Christ is not raised from the dead, because it's all a lie if that is the case. If Jesus is not alive right now and sitting at His Father's right hand, then you and I, we have no reason for hope. And there's certainly no reason for you to follow the teachings of a man who was long since dead and who, as it turns out, was a liar. But thankfully, the gospel accounts don't end with Christ's death. And if you believe everything that was written up to the point of his death, there is no reason not to believe that Jesus is risen indeed. As we work our way through the sermon today, think on this. Consider this thought. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. And if you believe in him, you have already been resurrected from sin and death and you will live forever. Let me say that one more time. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. And if you believe in him, you have already been resurrected from sin and death and you will live forever. I've got three points to the sermon. We'll run through those very quickly. The first point on the first day. The second point, seeing the signs. And the third point, he must rise. That he must rise. Again, the first point is on the first day. The second point is seeing the signs. And the third point is that he must rise. So let's consider now the first point of the sermon on the first day. Verse 1 says, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that, saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. It was the first day of the week. It was still dark. Mary went to Jesus' tomb, and she saw that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance to the tomb. Now Mary went. She went because she was doing, uh, continuing the, the, the burial preparations. And she was going to ask some of the Roman soldiers who would have been there guarding, who were there guarding the tomb. She was going to ask them to move the stone out of the way that she, so she could go in and honor the body of the Lord. But it's interesting that the text here says on the first day of the week. Because when Jesus spoke to his disciples about his death and resurrection, usually, not exclusively, but usually he said that he would be raised on the third day. 
And indeed, in the passage that we read from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that's how Paul refers to it. On the third day, he was raised from the dead. It's notable then that all four Gospels refer to the day of Jesus' resurrection not as the third day after the crucifixion, but instead to the first day of the week. And the reason for this, as as scholar D.A. Carson says, is disputed. But it may have, have to do with the desire to present the resurrection of Jesus as the beginning of something new. Now, given how John words, uh, begins his gospel with the words, in the beginning, which is intended clearly to echo Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, John seems to be evoking the first workday of creation, in which God said, let there be light. John In chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word. In other words, on the first day of the week was the Word. And now here, again, we have John saying on the first day of the week was the Lord. Jesus was crucified on the last work day of the week. Thinking about those days of creation, He was crucified on the sixth day, and he was raised on the first work day of the week. Now, it's very easy for us, 2,000 years removed, to underestimate the significance of Christ's resurrection for the first generation of Christians. But the great Princeton biblical theologian Gerhardus Voss helps us to understand the significance. I'm going to read to you a fairly lengthy quote from, from him. But I think it's important to do so. He writes, We do not sufficiently realize the profound sense the early church had of the epoch-making significance of the appearance and especially of the resurrection of the Messiah. The resurrection was to them nothing less than the beginning, uh, the beginning in anew, the, the second creation. And they felt that this ought to find expression in placing the Sabbath with reference to the other days of the week. Now, in chapter 1, John set the stage for the transformation, or to put, it to, to put it better, the ushering in of the new creation, when he spoke of Christ's presence at the involvement of the creation of the world. And now John is indicating in chapter 20 of the book of John that everything has shifted with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We might say everything has rolled forward a day. And because of this, the Sabbath shifted from the seventh day to the first day, beginning with the very first disciples. On the first day of the week, Mary came to the tomb. She saw that the stone had been rolled away. And verse 2 says that she ran to find Simon Peter and the beloved disciple, who was John, and told them that someone had taken the Lord out of the tomb. Now notice here for just a moment how Mary speaks of Jesus. She doesn't say that they've taken his body, but that they've taken him, the Lord, out of the tomb. I don't think that Mary Magdalene here was consciously making a theological point, but she doesn't separate Christ's body from who he is. Now, you may have said it when someone you love died. I know I have. That the body that's there in front of you isn't your loved one. That's not him. He's in heaven with Jesus now. His body isn't who he is. I understand the sentiment. I've held that sentiment, but it's not entirely true. Our bodies are a part of who we are. Our souls weren't intended at the beginning to be disembodied. 
Now we can take it too far and think that our identity, who we are, is only our bodies. But I think it's been taken too far in the other direction as well, that my body is not who I am, and therefore I can modify my body, I can transform my body, I can do things to my body that perhaps ought not to be done to make it reflect my my true self, my inner self, to make my body reflect the fact that I have a a brain that is is not uh, congruent with my body. That's not the way the Bible understands the body and the soul, the external and the internal. These things go together. They're integral to one another. Now Mary says that they have taken the Lord and she and the other women don't know where they have laid him. She believes that that some grave robbers probably came and took Jesus. The, The robbing of graves was a common enough experience, a common enough occurrence that the emperor Claudius ordered the death penalty for those convicted of destroying tombs or stealing bodies. And so it was natural for Mary to think when confronted with the empty tomb that the Lord had been taken, stolen from his grave. This takes us to the second point of the sermon, seeing the signs. Verse 3 says that Peter went with the other disciple, John, to the tomb. And verse 4 says that they were running together, but John ran faster than Peter and reached the tomb first. This is probably because John was a good bit younger than Peter. There, there's some estimates, some, some people understand that John lived into the 90s AD, that, that this gospel was written very late in that first century. And so that, if that is the case, he, he could have been, he might have been a teenager. And so he outran Peter, he got to the tomb first, but verse 5 says that in stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. He, he waited, he deferred to his elder, to Peter. Now, in verse 5, we have that word saw, and that's not the first time that the word saw has been used in this passage. It won't be the last time. The first time that the word saw was used was back in verse 1, when Mary Magdalene came to the tomb in the dark, and she saw that the stone had been rolled away. In these ten verses, the English word saw is used four times. However, the Greek word for saw is not always the same in these four instances, these four uses of the word. In verses 1 and 5, John uses the word blepo, which means simply to look, to see. Both Mary Magdalene and John the Apostle at different times took a look at the tomb, inside the tomb, but neither entered at this point. They, they merely saw, they simply saw. Verses 6 and 7 say, Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. The word saw in verse 6 is a different Greek word, theoreo, theoreo, which means to see. But it also has the, co- the, the, the aspect of to contemplate. And the English word theorize comes from this Greek word. So you might get the, uh, the connection there a little. Peter stood there and he contemplated the linen, linen cloths. Imagine what was going through Peter's mind after having denied Jesus three times after probably recognizing the fact that his denial of Jesus, it it didn't necessarily deter Jesus' death. It didn't do anything to prevent Jesus from dying, but it certainly prevented uh, Peter from dying. He didn't want to be associated with this man who uh, the the Jews and the Romans considered to be a a criminal. 
And so he's standing there contemplating what he's seeing. And the reason for Peter's contemplation is that if Jesus' body had been stolen, which is what they thought, his burial cloths would have stayed on his body. They wouldn't be laying there in the tomb. Now think for a minute about Lazarus' resurrection from the dead. All of the disciples witnessed Lazarus' resurrection, but John is the only one to write about it in his gospel. When Lazarus was raised to life by Jesus in John chapter 11, verse 44 of chapter 11 says, The man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Lazarus was brought back to life, but Lazarus retained his own body. And so the, the linen cloths remained on him. When Jesus was raised from the dead, there was a profound difference in his resurrected body from Lazarus' resurrected body. Jesus' resurrected body was glorified, and it appears to have passed through the linen burial cloths. Later on in chapter 20, Jesus simply passes through the door and is present with his disciples in that locked room. Peter saw these things, meaning he contemplated the presence and the placement of Jesus' burial cloths and the face cloth that had been folded up separately. But now we have the occurrence of the fourth use of uh, the word saw and the third different word in verse 8. In that verse, when John comes in, he too saw the cloths. But here yet another Greek word is used for saw. This word, horao, can mean to see with comprehension and understanding. And that seems to be the case because when John saw, verse 8 says, he believed. There's a difference between the way that John saw and the way that Peter saw and the way that Mary Magdalene saw. The resurrection in one sense was yet another sign. It was a magnificent sign. It was the greatest of all signs that Jesus ever performed. It was similar to Lazarus' resurrection, but it was of order of magnitude greater, very different from Lazarus' resurrection. Lazarus, you see, after he was raised from the dead by Jesus, had to die a second time. After his resurrection, Jesus never again suffered death. Jesus had, at that point after his resurrection, he continues to have a glorified body. His glorified body was different enough that his disciples didn't recognize him when they first saw him, but it was similar enough that after being prompted by Jesus, they realized who he was. This sign, seeing that Jesus had risen from the dead, was enough for the beloved disciple, John. He believed. He saw those linen cloths. He saw that face cloth. He saw them on the stone bench inside the tomb, and he believed. Even before actually seeing the risen Lord face to face. And so unlike Mary, unlike Peter, John saw those cloths, and he knew what it must mean. And he believed that Jesus had risen from the dead. This takes us to the third point, that he must rise. Throughout John's gospel, and especially in the last few chapters, John has been at pains to point out all of the ways that what Jesus said and what Jesus did were fulfillments of Scripture. He does it over and over again throughout his gospel, and especially in the final few chapters. But so far in chapter 20, he's made no mention of the things 
uh, of which he has written that are fulfilling Scripture that was written. The Old Testament Scripture, of course. But that changes in verse 9. Continuing with the thought of verse 8, he writes in verse 9, For as yet they did not understand the Scripture that he must rise from the dead. Now you may find yourself wondering where in Scripture, again, where in the Old Testament, that was John's and Jesus's and all of the apostles' Bible, where in Scripture is the resurrection of Jesus prophesied? Well, the Greek scholar F.F. Bruce suggests a couple of possible passages to which John may be referring here. One, Hosea chapter 6, verse 2, says, After two days he will revive us. On the third day he will raise us up that we may live before him. In this passage, the Lord is calling Israel and Judah to repentance for their unfaithfulness. And he's promising their, their restoration when they do. The second passage that Bruce mentions is Leviticus chapter 23, verse 11. Verses 10 and 11 say this, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you and reap its harvest, you shall bring the sheaf of the firstfruits of your harvest to the priest. And he shall wave the sheaf before Yahweh, so that you may be accepted. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. Now this connection becomes a little stronger if we make a a very literal translation of verse 1 of our passage. Uh, The English translations say, on the first day of the week. But but a woodenly literal translation sounds something like this. And on the first of the Sabbaths, Mary Magdalene came early. Now remember, Leviticus 23 verse 11 says, On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave the sheaf of the firstfruits. And this connection is even stronger when we read 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 20, which says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. Christ, as the firstfruits of the harvest of the resurrection, was resurrected, or to put it another way, brought before the Lord God on the first day after the Sabbath, the first day of the week. Another Old Testament passage that John most certainly is thinking of here is Psalm chapter 16, verse 10, which we read in our responsive reading earlier in the service. And this verse says, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. Now, this is a psalm of David, and and we could interpret that as referring uh, David referring to himself here. And at first glance, this psalm doesn't seem like a messianic psalm, does it? We we often quote this psalm, the lines for me have fallen in pleasant places. But it's clear that the psalm speaks of an inheritance for God's people that goes beyond the physical land of Israel. David writes in verses 5 and 6, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. But think about David's lot. In life, physical Israel, it was not so pleasant for him. Even after he was enthroned as king. David is looking in this psalm to his future inheritance with God in heaven. But here's the other thing to note. David is not, he cannot be exclusively speaking about himself here. David's body did see corruption. His body was placed in a grave at his death, and it experienced the same decomposition as everyone else who dies, except one, of course. And this fact is picked up by Peter in his very first sermon in Acts chapter 2, verses 23, uh, 22 rather, to 36. 
He preaches about Christ's crucifixion and his death, and then he turns and speaks about his resurrection. And he quotes a portion of Psalm 16, saying, For David says concerning him, and he quotes chapter, uh, Psalm 16.10 along with the surrounding verses. And then Peter says in verse 29 of Acts chapter 2, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. And we could add in our day, 2,000 years later, his tomb is with us somewhere in Jerusalem, Israel, somewhere to this day. His tomb is still there and the dust of his bones remain in that grave. But Peter goes on to say in verses 30 to 32 of Acts chapter 2, being therefore a prophet, he's speaking of David here, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. It's not just one passage of Scripture that speaks of Christ's resurrection, though the word in John chapter 20, verse 9, Scripture is in the singular. John probably here is speaking of Scripture in the same way we might refer to our Bible. The Bible refers, the Bible prophesies Christ's resurrection. And it's not just these three or so verses in the Old Testament that we've highlighted that prophesy the resurrection of the Lord. All of the Old Testament points to Christ's resurrection. Without His resurrection, the sacrifices and the rituals are empty. They have no meaning. Because all of these sacrifices, all of these rituals, they point to Jesus and His perfect sacrifice on the cross. But if Christ be not raised, to put it in the King James English, that according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 14, our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain if Christ be not raised. If Christ is not raised, then his sacrifice on the cross was not perfect. And his death on the cross has no meaning. There's no point to this whole Christianity thing and the whole church thing if Christ is not risen from the dead. Go join the Rotary Club or some other social club and do some good. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And if you believe in Him, if you trust in Him for your salvation, if you're not looking to your own works, how good you think you are to earn your way into heaven, if you understand that Jesus Christ died for you, that He lived for you, that He lived this perfect life and died this perfect death so that you might be found acceptable in His Father's sight, if you believe in Him, you have been raised spiritually. You've been made alive. You've been born again in Christ. Where once your heart was as cold and dead as the stone that was rolled away from the the tomb of Jesus Christ, now it has come to life. You are no longer enslaved to your sinful passions, brothers and sisters. You have been set free. You are able to be obedient to God's commands and you don't need to add to His commands. And because you have been raised spiritually from the dead, you also can look forward with with certainty to your bodily resurrection with all other believers in Christ when He returns at the end of the age to judge the living and the dead. You don't need to look to that day of judgment with fear and trepidation. Because if you have been justified now, you will be acquitted. 
You will be vindicated. You will be shown to be one who is in Christ Jesus on that last great and terrible day for those who are not in Christ Jesus. At that day, the day of judgment, your souls which have been in heaven with Christ will be reunited with your body which has been in the grave and your body will be made like Christ's resurrected glorified body. Imagine this. No more ailments. No more physical weakness. No more COVID-19. No more back pain. No more broken bones. No more scrapes, bruises, or bangs. No more giving into the temptations of your sinful nature as, as the old man of the flesh throws these temptations out in front of you, trying to trip you up. But better than all of that, as great as the anticipation of that ought to be for us, better than all of that, you will have eyes to behold Jesus Christ in the fullness of His glory. And you will have sinless minds to perceive and to understand Him as He truly is. Not completely, not comprehensively, but more fully than you ever have been able to understand who Christ is. This is what the resurrection of Christ points us to. It is the source of our hope. It is the reason why we worship the triune God. It is the reason why we gather to worship at all. Because Jesus Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. And that, brothers and sisters, is the best of all good news. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious God, Heavenly Father, we are truly thankful that through nothing that we have done, Christ Jesus is risen. Yes, O oh Lord, we sent him to the cross. He died because of our sins, which were imputed to him on the cross. He became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. But Lord, he was raised and we had nothing to do with it. He was raised with resurrection power. And that same power, because of the faith that you have given to us as a gift that we have in Jesus Christ, that same resurrection power has raised us from the dead. We are alive in Christ. And we are grateful, O Lord. We are thankful that Christ Jesus is the first fruits of a glorious harvest and that we are a part of that harvest and that that harvest is your inheritance. You have given us as a gift to yourself, even as you gave Christ Jesus as a gift to us. We are thankful, O oh Lord, for the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and for the redemption of those who call upon his name in faith. We pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.